basically what the court looked at was that there was no genuine assessment of beneficiaries' needs. That's one of the duties of all trustees is to genuinely consider beneficiaries in relation to a distribution of whether it be income or capital from a discretionary trust or, or an entitlement under a fund. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 254 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When an SMSF member slash trustee dies, how much discretion does the surviving trustee have around the payment of death benefits? Can they just take it all for themselves and ignore others' dependents when there is no valid binding death benefit nomination? Under the Masella case, Courts usually didn't question how a trustee exercised their discretion. That is why in the past very few plaintiffs attacked the exercise of discretion itself. Instead, they attacked other elements, for example, the appointment of trustees or whether a death benefit nomination was binding or even valid at all. And they were well advised. But this has now changed with the Marcella case, which we talk about in this episode. This is the first case where a plaintiff successfully attacked the exercise of discretion itself. Here's Paul McEnroth of Cleary Hall in Brisbane with the details. We're looking today at a, at a case study. It's loosely based on a real-life case from Victoria, which is Marcella's case. The name has a little more detail to it, but the case study is loosely based on that. And it was a a blended family situation and the dispute came about after the death of the matriarch who we'll call Helen today. Uh, Helen was married to Rick for 29 years before her death and Helen had two children to a previous relationship but Rick had been I guess in those children's lives since the age of 14 and 12 I think it was. So ultimately, we've got a family which has a stepfather, two children, and for the purposes of one of the disputes, uh, there was Carolyn, the daughter, uh, was married to a person we'll call Martin. So that's kind of the dynamic of the group. And unfortunately, Helen passed away. And are these real names or did you change them for privacy purposes? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't remember if I did change the names or not. I may not have. Yes, um, okay. But their, their names yes, are in Rick the... Rick and Helen. Yes, yeah, Rick and Helen. Their names are in yeah, the public Rick. domain. So it's from the case, it seemed like the disputes came out of the blue and everyone was happy while mum was around and got on quite well. Rick was a grandfather to the children and had a very good relationship. And unfortunately, when mum passed away, all that fell away. Perhaps mum was the glue holding them all together. And from her death, and sometimes money gets in the road of relationships too, but from her death, there resulted a number of different disputes, two primary that we'll talk about today. Paul, can I just quickly ask you something just to set the scene? Where did the wealth of the family come from? Did Rick have a well-paid job that brought all the wealth into the family or did Helen originally bring the wealth into the family? That was actually a little bit disputed. So uh, Helen did have her own wealth and it's not really discussed where that came from. 
But part of the dispute was that Helen left in her will a, a comment that, well, Rick Rick has his own assets from his, you know, successful business and therefore doesn't need further provision. And, and that was disputed in, in the court and, and it seemed that the court accepted that that claim wasn't accurate. It's a little hard. It doesn't exactly say where the wealth built up from, but it seems as though Helen came away from her first relationship or marriage with a number of assets which later on were the subject of this dispute. It seems that Rick at that time didn't have significant assets as, as was alluded to in the will. So there were two disputes. One was in relation to a self-managed superannuation fund and the other was a family provision claim made by Rick for further provision under the will. So in terms of the, the SMSF, there was entitlement to around $450,000 in a, a, I guess, a death payment from the superannuation fund. And I guess if we talk about the superannuation dispute first, and we'll, we'll then turn to the, the will dispute, there had been no effective binding death nomination left in place for Helen. There was an earlier lapsed binding death nomination, uh, which gave all of her entitlement to her grandchildren, which ought to have been ineffective anyway. Because yeah, because we, they're not cis dependents. Yeah, so how that came about is, is not discussed, but uh, it seemed like her intention was that the grandchildren would benefit rather than her children, for example. The general rule is never leave your super to your grandchildren because they're not cis-dependent. Yeah, absolutely. The super must always go either to your spouse or your children. Correct. So, I mean, even if even if it was effective in terms of timing, because it was, it was actually made well and truly out of time, a lot of earlier funds, in, including SMSFs, had a, had a three-year limit. Some retail funds still have a three-year term on binding death nominations so that you have to refresh them. And had it been made within that time, it would have been ineffective anyway for CISACT purposes. So where the dispute comes down to is, is the actions that occurred after the death of Helen. Helen had made her daughter Carolyn a co-trustee of the, of the fund prior to death. So at the time of Helen's death, Carolyn obviously became the sole trustee of the fund. I see. So Rick wasn't in the SMSF? No, he wasn't. So Helen had been an individual trustee and beneficiary and Caroline had just been an individual trustee but without being a beneficiary or a member. That's correct, yep. So what happened after after death was that Caroline, for whatever reason, there, there seems to have been some confusion as to what the proper mechanisms were in the trust deed for the super fund as to whether there needed to be a second trustee or not. So for some reason, there were two sets of documents prepared, one which appointed Carolyn's husband as a co-trustee and a set of documents where Carolyn acted as a sole trustee. It's not really explored or explained uh, other than to say that, that those steps occurred. But effectively, the court seemed to follow that, well, perhaps the better course is to consider the actions of the two trustees, being Carolyn and her husband, and look at, I guess, their actions. They would have acted in coherence anyway. I mean, they would have pursued the same goal. Yeah, and that actually came, that is, um, I guess, the crux of this part of the case. So for a long time, it was considered that, you know, trustees of discretionary trust, for example, 
had an ultimate discretion to act in accordance with the deed, but didn't have to disclose what their reasoning was for a distribution. And those rules uh, were thought to apply to trustees actioned under a super fund in the same way that, you know, you don't have to say what your reasoning was. And I think that still is the law. But what this case brought out was that trustees of, of funds, super funds, and also discretionary trusts actually have to give a proper consideration of potential beneficiaries, I guess, of their claim to need benefit under the fund or the trust. So as you can imagine, the trustees of this fund, they appointed all of the um, the SMS of entitlement to Carolyn as, as the child, and her, both her brother and Rick were excluded from benefits. So her brother as well. Correct, yeah. That's, so she, uh, she appointed all of it to herself. Wow, that's mean. Hmm. Like I can still understand Rick a little bit, but the brother I struggle to understand. Yeah, and uh, look, I think if you looked at, you know, the subjective intention of the deceased, you know, it was for her grandchildren to ultimately benefit equally if you if you look at those original binding nominations. I so, see Charles and the brother Charles didn't have children, only Caroline uh, had believe, children. To be honest, I can't recall, but I but I think from memory um, I'm stretching a little bit that both of them had children. So an equal distribution might have been, you know, the fairer. Yeah, a fairer course. And would but, also have reflected Helen's wish to give it to the grandchildren. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that would have been the fair outcome. But basically what the court looked at was that there was no genuine assessment of beneficiaries' needs. Um, and that's that's one of the duties of all trustees is to genuinely consider beneficiaries in relation to a distribution of whether it be income or capital from a discretionary trust or or an entitlement under a fund here. And how the court looked at it was, well, the husband was appointed as co-trustee and within probably 30 seconds they had signed, you know, the minutes to distribute all of the benefit to Carolyn. So how could they have, you know, seriously considered all beneficiaries in that time? Now, it's probably a little fe- uh, a little tough because, you know, they probably considered it beforehand and the like and disregarded it. But the court looked at it and said, well, we don't genuinely believe that they considered Rick's need because he had he did have needs because he was not quite broke, but he, he didn't have a lot of money. Also, obviously, the brother as well. Paul, before we talk about the needs and what the, um, what the court decided, just very quickly, technically, Helen is an individual trustee and the only member. Caroline is an individual trustee. So Caroline's position basically doesn't change with the death of Helen because she was an individual trustee before and after death. And then Martin steps into the shoes of Helen as the individual trustee. Is that how it works? He was appointed by a deed. There was obviously a a power to appoint another trustee. What I'm aiming at is who is a member of of the SMSF now because I... There isn't one. There is no Um, member. It's probably appointed for the winding up of of the fund because the fund would have had to have been wound up and make a death payment. So when you pay out the death benefit of an SMSF, you don't actually have to distribute to a member while everybody is alive. You can only distribute to a member and nobody else. But when the only member has died, you don't actually pay out to a member, you pay out to a beneficiary. Yeah, that's right. Or the legal personal representative of the of the persons of the members' estate. estate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, it either goes to a sister pendant or it goes to the estate. Correct. So what the court ultimately decided here was that the entitlement that was paid to Carolyn had to be paid back to the fund and that independent trustees were appointed to the fund in order to administer it and, and wind it up effectively. So we don't know what the result was because that will never be known, I would have thought. But, but that, ultimately yeah. you, would, you would expect there to be some sort of different arrangement, uh, whether it be... Uh, split equally or some different proportion. But yeah, we'll never know the answer to that. But that's very often the crooks. The trustee, the remaining trustee has access to the cash, takes the cash. The court says you have to pay the cash back, but very often the cash has disappeared by then. It's very, very hard to get the cash back. Yeah. And that, that that keeps lawyers employed. Yes. Would it be possible to, for the court to then say, well, if you don't pay the cash back, we go for your house? Can the court go that far? Or is it more just, oh, oops, the cash is gone and, and that's no, the, the story? The replacement trustees would be able to pursue the, I guess, Carolyn as a normal, you know, debtor. Hence go for the house or any other assets. Yeah, if they own that assets or, or you know, they've they've put the money into their house, they've renovated the house, for example, Ultimately, that is a step that's taken in bankruptcy. So it's not as if the the super fund trustee would would immediately just be able to get access to the house, but ultimately it would be obtaining a judgment debt against the person because they haven't, you know, followed the court order. And then if the steps happen that they go into bankruptcy, well, a trustee in bankruptcy might look to sell the house to recover what they can. Oh, well, that's the first step. Of uh, Marcella, there were two aspects to it. One, ah, was... yes, of course. The se- second one is the family provision claim. So the first one was basically probably more focused on Charles, although Rick uh, was uh, Rick was yeah. a sister dependent as well. So it covered Rick and Charles, both yeah. the brother and the stepfather. Yep. yep. So really, it was about I guess the two actions were were linked in in many ways because Carolyn and her brother were executors of the estate. And obviously, probably for saving costs and the like, they put the two cases together, even though they're slightly different parties, but it made sense to hear them together. So we had a dispute about the super fund trustee and their distribution, and then obviously a family provision claim by the husband in relation to not being, you know, not getting what he would consider to be an adequate provision from the estate. Actually, very quickly, back to the SMSF, I apologize if you said it and if I missed it. So the court said implemented new trustees. Do you know who the trustees were? No, the I SMSF? Don't. Okay, let's assume they were third-party trustees. Those trustees had the choice of putting everything into the estate or paying the super out to the three available sister pendants, which was the stepfather and and the two siblings. Yes, that's right. And one of those options would have been taken. Can't say which, and I can almost guarantee it would be some form of independent, maybe a corporate trustee who does this. For a living. Yeah, that's for their work, so. Welcome back. So going forward, the courts will still not question whether a trustee's decision was correct or fair, just as before. So this hasn't changed. But what has changed is that now the courts will consider whether the process taken to reach that decision was consistent with the trustee's legal obligations to act in good faith. 
in the next episode, episode 255, Paul McEnroe will discuss family provision claims and go back to the Marcella case and discuss Rick's family provision claim. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. 